0: We have a a glorious passage of scripture in front of us, obviously. Uh, Let's pray together and we will dive right in, okay? Let's pray one more time. Father, uh, we come before you, Lord, asking that you would help us, Lord, in this hour to approach, Lord, such a solemn scripture with a right heart and with a critical mind and with integrity and honesty and transparency, Lord, you know us all together. You know, you see right through us. And you see our soul. You told Judas what you need to do, do quickly. And Father, you know every heart. You test the heart of man. As scripture says, one day you will reveal the secrets of men's hearts through the gospel. And so Father, we pray that in this hour you would help us to do the heart work necessary to know ourselves and then to know you rightly. Give us grace, Lord. We need your grace now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this passage, obviously, often quoted, very well known. It is the the um, it is the pillar text for self examination. Test yourself. See if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. Or do you not know this about yourself? That Jesus Christ is in you. I mean, that's a text that many of us can rattle off, and that we know. And that we've maybe even memorized. But I tell you, the more I dug into this passage of Scripture, the more I realized that it is quite foreign to common evangelical conversation today to talk about exactly what Paul is talking about here, self-examination. And so uh, the, 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 the title for today's sermon is Testing Yourself, The Anatomy of Self-Examination. And what I mean by, it's very alien to what much of the church is doing today, because much of the church today would tell you that we need not put too much emphasis on this idea of self-examination. You don't want to make it harder for people to become a Christian. You don't want to trip people up, or you don't want to bog them down with difficult hard thoughts. You want to make it easy for people to come into the church and to become a Christian and to be identified with your church and to tithe and to give and to participate and to increase the roles of the church. But really, the Apostle Paul cares nothing about any of that. See, the Apostle Paul knew, going back to chapter 5 in the book of 2 Corinthians, once again, he knew that the only person that really matters at the end of the day is that you please God. Because he knew that one day, according to chapter 5, verse 11, he would stand before the great, awesome seat, judgment seat of Christ. And that one day his works as a minister would be tested. They would be tried. God would, would investigate and examine his work. And on the day of judgment, everything that he did, whether good or bad would meet an equal recompense. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul tells there the church that it really matters how you build a church. If your church is built on wood, hay, and stubble, then it will burn on the day of judgment. But if you build with good building materials, with good uh, uh, building stones, if you have a good foundation, then you can expect that your work will redound into eternity with eternal reward. And my friends, false conversion is one of, the, one of the building materials that we don't want to build our church upon. You don't want to fill the church with people that are not genuinely converted. Simply because they come. Simply because they're friendly. Simply because they like religious things simply because they've, they've chosen to identify themselves with heritage grace because, you know, it's a good, clean place to go and take my kids, and it's a good, clean place to go and identify with moral people that do moral things. But moralism and morality is not enough to call yourself a Christian. It's simply not enough. I think that Paul's words here, when taken really serious, are quite... Foreign to much of what's going on in the church. I've, heard, I've often heard people say, I went to a pastor, I was plagued with doubt about my salvation. I went to them because I was scared and I was afraid. Am I genuinely a Christian? And you know, I've heard several people tell me, the pastor told me, that's just the devil messing with you. Don't worry about that, son. Go. You're fine. I would never do that to any one of you. If you came to me and you genuinely were doubting your salvation, or you were genuinely struggling with whether or not you are a Christian, I would never tell you that's just the devil messing with you. I would do exactly what Paul says to do in this scripture. I would examine, are you in the faith? Is Christ in you? And so let's see the different evidences, the different lines of evidence that go along with that We could say that uh, the Apostle Paul, as a matter of fact, before the Puritans came, that he was the original surgeon of the soul. That he was the one that originally was there testing the believers in Corinth, in Galatia, in Ephesus, in Rome, as to the legitimacy and the condition of their faith. As a matter of fact, this word here that he uses at the very outset of this text, test yourselves. The word test is found 21 times in the New Testament, 17 times it's used by Paul. And the majority of those times it is used to test the Christian's faith, to test spiritual things. Paul was a discerning apostle. He wanted to discern not only doctrine, he wanted to discern not only a church's purity, but he also wanted to discern the condition of people's souls. And so he would examine, he would test, he would try, he would make a critical assessment as we're going to go on to see. And again, he even, he even tried his own ministry. He would test his own ministry to see of what type it is. But listen, of all the different discerning and all of the different testing and all the different trying that you can do and examining and evaluating and assessing that you can do out of everything in Scripture, the most important thing is what you do with this test. Because it's a test that is upon yourself. There's nothing more important than to get a pass or a fail here. If you pass, then that means that you have an eternal uh, destiny full of glory and bliss and unspeakable pleasure. But if you fail, then your life will very quickly issue forth an eternal destruction Eternal destruction. And so it cannot get any weightier than what we're talking about in this passage of Scripture. It simply doesn't get any more important than this. And I would say, do not go out those doors unless you have done the test and you have come out on the right side. Or at least you've come out on the honest side. And saying, you know, I have tested myself. I have looked at myself. And really, at the end of the test, I've come to conclude, I don't know. That's not a good place for you to be. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10 that the believer is one that is filled with full assurance of faith. No doubting. No wavering. At some fundamental level, you have to come to grips with the fact that you are a Christian. Christianity does not look like schizophrenic spirituality. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me he loves me not. I am a Christian today. I'm not a Christian tomorrow. I may be a Christian today. I might not be a Christian tomorrow. Christianity, therefore, is not, and salvation is not conditional upon your situation, upon your attitude or your mood or your circumstances. This is the beauty of salvation is that none of those things are contingencies for whether or not you are a Christian. As we're going to go on to see, there are, there are essential marks of knowing whether or not you are in the faith. So let's dive in again to this text. Test yourself. See if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail the test. And then verse 6 I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. And that's an important factor there at the end. But I'm going to give you five angles to look at this passage of Scripture to help you with the evaluation. Number one, I want to point out to you the context of this evaluation or this examination. What is the context of these words? I know that a lot of us can maybe quote the text. We know where the text is. We can say it's 2 Corinthians 13, 5. But do we know the context in which this text emerges? Where does it come up from? It's not an isolation. It's not just a brute statement. It has a connection. There's a reason why Paul is talking like this. And let me just put it simply for you the context of self-evaluation is the context of the local church Why do I say that well because you remember if you just go back a little ways to the book of Corinthians you remember that there earlier in the in the, in the context the church was actually seeking proof of Paul's salvation. Paul's a uh, uh, ministry his apostleship they were in, in a sense telling Paul test you know Paul test yourself. We want to see proof that you are who you say you are. But it emerges in the context of the local church. This passage is not spoken merely in a a person's personal belief system, in in, in a person's individualistic thoughts. How many times have you heard people say that? My salvation, my, my spirituality, that is a personal matter. I don't discuss that. That's too personal. Nothing could be more foreign to Scripture than that. No, your salvation is to be done in a community of believers. Your self-examination and the testing of your faith is to be done in the context of the local church, in connection to the local church. And that's where it takes place. See, God doesn't save anybody so that they can live the Christian life on their own somewhere over there with a loose affiliation to a church. That is absolutely unbiblical. It is always in the context of the local church. John Calvin said, you do not have God as your father if you don't have the church as your mother. And what he meant by that was not you're saved by works. What he meant by that is, look, if you are saved, if you are a child of the father, then you will not be able to help but to make the church your mother. That you belong to the church. You're there in the church. People know you in the church and this is why I have to make an argument for church membership. This is the natural consequence of Scripture here, folks. It's that church membership, so so beautifully provided for us in Scripture, is such a great safeguard to this type of spiritual evaluation. I tell you what, if somebody in our church, if a member of our church comes to the conclusion, I don't believe I'm a Christian, and that happens. I've had people say that. I've baptized people who changed their mind. And then come to me after several months of being in the church and say, you know what, I don't think I ever was. I I want to go back to the world. I was having a better time in the world, in my sin, in my darkness. A young man that uh, couldn't let go of smoking marijuana. Should have moved to Colorado, but you see what's going on in Colorado, my goodness. Like, we need more people walking around out of their minds in this culture. Yeah, that's what we need. Unbelievable. It could be anything, right? Jesus said, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What is that one thing you won't let go of? The rich man came to Jesus and went away sorrowful. Why? Too much money. Too many possessions. His heart was rooted there. And the accumulation of his things, and the obsession, and the idolizing of his stuff, he could not let it go. Therefore, he he forfeited his soul. And what will it be for us? Is there anything that we are holding on to that we can't let go for the sake of Christ? You are sure, as Jesus said, if you will save your life, you are sure to lose it. That's where the church comes in. That's why the church is so important to be in a context of a local church where you're accountable to one another. You know, Scripture doesn't have anything good to say for folks that won't go to church. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 and 26 makes it very clear that absenting yourself and frequently absenting yourself from the local church is the path to apostasy. It's that serious. It's that serious. You have a pattern in your life, you have a pattern of not going to church. Uh, somebody visited our church a while back said, I've been looking for a church for four years. I'm in and out. I'll go for a couple weeks, and then I'll, a few months, I don't go no more. That's not a good road. <laughs> Hebrews says, let us, let us hold fast. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. You know, the author of Hebrews is so blood earnest about Christianity. He says, For he who promises faithful, let us consider how we may stimulate one another for love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, that word ecclesia, church, assembly. He says, As is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer there remains no longer any sacrifice of sins. That's an amazing connection. He's saying, remove yourself from the New Covenant Church and you are on your way to a position where you will find no sacrifice for sin. Now obviously the author of Hebrews, they're speaking to Jewish Christians who were being tempted to go back to Judaism Back to the sacrificial system. Back to the dietary laws. Back to the law. And he's saying, no, don't do that. And as sheer evidence of you doing that is Notice how he talks about this. He speaks about it. He speaks about failure to identify yourself with the church as a habit-forming behavior. As is the habit of some. Some people just can't clean up their attendance record. They keep forsaking the assembly. So it's not good. It's not good. So much more can be said about that, about the context of the local church and the context of this self-evaluation. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in connection to the local church and to your other brothers and sisters. They'll see if you're struggling. They'll know if you're doubting. They know if you don't have assurance. They know if you are plagued with with assurance issues. They know if you are in the faith or not. They'll help you to determine that. They'll help you to determine that. Now, let's go on here. Not just the context, therefore, of the examination, but what I've called the objective. What is the objective? The objective of the evaluation here is so, it's not an examination of just anything, folks. It's not just an examination, do you like Christianity? It's not just, are you happy at church? How's, what's your joy level? What is your psychological condition? It's not whether or not you like your pastor, you like your church, any of that. It's very specific. It is The, the objective is salvific. It is dealing with whether or not you are in the faith. And there is a technical term, I believe, where he says, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. This is an articular use of the word faith, meaning the faith. That's not just a translation. That is a literal word for word. It is not just see if you have faith. No. Lots of people have faith, Right? Demons have faith. Demons believe. So if your faith is no better than the faith of demons, you're not in a good position. But this is talking about something more objective than that. See if you, we could translate this, see if you belong to the faith. What is the faith? The faith is Christianity. The faith is the apostolic doctrine. The faith is the gospel. See if you are actually part of the Christian faith or not. It is an absolute test. It's an all-inclusive test to see if you are in. And he gives not just the, the procedure, but he also gives the purpose. So that the purpose of this is to see if they were in line with the faith of the church, the faith of the apostles. This makes sense because it was It was Paul's job, we can say. It was his commission. You remember, as an apostle, he had an objective. And that was to bring people into the faith. To see that the Gentiles come into the faith and obedience to the faith. Let me give you some verses. Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says, It was through Christ that he had received grace Apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all of the Gentiles for his name's sake. Romans 6, verse 16 or 17 says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching. Another way you can translate it, to the pattern of doctrine. Amazing, right? To which you were committed. Do you belong? to the creed of the church, to the confession of the church? Do you belong to the statement, the doctrinal statements of the of the church? Do you belong to the apostolic teaching? Are you in line with the doctrine of Christ? John says in 2 John, he says there that some have gone astray going too far from the doctrine of Christ. Romans 16, verse 26. Again, he says that now it has been manifested by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God. It has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. And so it kind of goes both ways. It's adherence to the faith and it is obedience that emerges from faith. From faith. Not only that, he gives the procedure. This is how you do it. He goes from You know, the self-evaluation, and he gives two imperatives here. Test yourselves, and then he says, examine yourself. Very interesting, but that these words are not identical. These words are not identical. They're a bit different from one another. The test is sort of the overall determination to see if something is genuine or not. The examination is to make a critical assessment of the validity of something. To critically assess Something to discern something, the same word examine that John uses in First John chapter 4, verse 1 to discern whether or not you're dealing with a false teacher. He says, Beloved, First John 4 1, do not believe every spirit. He says, Test the spirits that's the word, Dakimadzo, test. The spirits, and I think there the word spirits refers to teachers. See whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. So he gives the context, the objective, and then let's zero in on the doctrine of the examination. He says, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith, and then he makes it more specific. After the call, examine yourself. He says, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? The focus of the examination is Christological. It is Christology. How do you begin to examine yourself to see if you're saved? Christ. Your relationship to Christ. Are you in Christ? We can say, is there love to Christ? Christ. Do you know Christ? Do you belong to Christ? Are you Christ's? Is he yours? More on that in a minute. But notice here that there is a twofold knowledge that he calls the church the believer, the person examining himself. There is a twofold knowledge that he's calling us to. Really, this is a study, if you would, of epistemology, how you know anything. John Calvin argued, boy, I feel like I'm quoting Calvin a lot. I really don't do that, do I? (laughs) But Calvin is the one that sort of set the stage for this epistemology. Know yourself and know God. He says, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. That's right. That's the way that it works. Paul speaks in much the same way and in much the same order. He, he says, first, you have to come into a knowledge about yourself. Do you not recognize this about yourself? And the word he uses for recognize is the word uh, epigenosko, which means maybe a special knowledge, a, a particular knowledge, an emphatic knowledge of something. So know yourself, then God. Paul was not simply calling the church to study epistemology, however. Ultimately, it's a study of salvation. It's a study of soteriology. It was not just be aware of yourself, but be aware of whether or not you have a relationship with Christ. That Christ is in you. And you've heard me preach enough to know that when that language, Christ in you, you in Christ, He's talking about what doctrine? Union with Christ. Indissoluble union with Christ. That you are glued to Him. Joined to Him. That you are one with Him. After all, what did Jesus pray in His high priestly prayer? John 17. That they would be one and that we would be one. That they in us and we in them and they in each other. That we would be one. That's the union that He's talking about. For Paul, the question which he asks assumes that they would give a positive response. Or do you not know this about yourself? Obviously saying, look, at some point for the Christian, this evaluation is axiomatic. It should be self-evident. You should know that you know. And that doesn't mean that you will not struggle with doubt. Some of the godliest people I know have struggled and have been plagued with doubt. They've been plagued with whether or not they're Christians. They look at their sinful life. They look at their past. They look at their conduct. They say, how can I possibly be a Christian? Look what I'm capable of. And it's very easy. That's why Jude says, be patient with those that doubt. But at the end of the day, and I think after all the counseling and after all of the fellowship and after all of the encouragement and instruction, at the end of the day, there has to be to some minimal level an axiomatic awareness that Christ is in you. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 14, getting a little bit closer now to how do you know? How do you know? We begin with internal evidence, existential evidence internal evidence within the believer himself that you are a believer that you are in the faith that Christ indeed is in you and it begins with the ministry of the holy spirit Romans 8:14 For all who are being led by the spirit of God these are the sons of God For you have not been for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. See, God is not to be your taskmaster. God is to be your father. That's that's the relationship. Luther said that before he knew God as his father, God was nothing more than just a judge presiding over him, ready to smite him. And to bring him low. But a believer is somebody that has encountered the fatherhood of God. The Spirit helps us, the Spirit of adoption helps us to cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our Spirit that we are children of God. See, the Spirit is at work in the heart of the believer. Bearing witness, testifying, agreeing with us that we are children of God. He helps us to know, in other words. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. Now, that latter phrase there, in verse 17, that leads us not just to the internal witness of the Spirit, whereby He convicts, whereby He teaches, whereby He speaks, whereby He leads us to know that we are children of God, but then to the external evidence as well. If we suffer with Him, we'll also be glorified with Him. So there, it sounds like a condition. You must suffer in order to be a child of God. That's not the dynamic. The dynamic is... If you're a child of God, you will suffer. In other words, fruit will follow faith. Right? Faith is the root and works or obedience is the fruit. And let's look at the fruit. When Christ comes into our lives, when we are in union with Christ, brothers and sisters, your life should change. That's fundamental to becoming a Christian. There Christ interrupts our life. He disrupts our life. There is a holy invasion where Christ comes to settle in. He tabernacles. That means He sets up shop in your heart. He resides in you now. Many, many passages. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. You see that? Identity has been, uh, what's the word? Revolutionized. You have a new identity. You are a new creation. All things are past. Behold, the new has come. Are you not renewed? That's a big question. Objectively, external evidence that you can ask yourself if you're a Christian, is there no renewal? Is it, I'm the same person I was before I started talking religiously, and now I just kind of tacked a couple religious slogans into my vocabulary, and that makes me a Christian. But everything else in my life is pretty much the same. You know? I still live in the same way. I still walk in the same way. I still dress the same. I still conduct myself at work the same. I still treat my family the same. I still treat my wife the same. I still think on the same things. I still watch the same things, listen to the same things. I just added a couple religious things to my my, my repertoire, and and therefore, I am a Christian. I would say, no, you're not. Because Christ comes into your life and He changes you from the inside. Galatians chapter 6, verse 4 Verse 14, this is what it looks like. Paul says, Galatians 6, 14, he says, May it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There are two crucifixions going on here. Two crucifixions. The world is dead to us, and we are dead to the world. That's the way it works. The world no longer has that same allurement that it once had in your life. It no longer has that constraining power anymore. You no longer have to sin, whereas previously you did. You were under the power of sin. You were under the dominion of sin. You were a slave of sin. You drank sin like water. You drank iniquity like water. You had no filters. You had no governors. You had no constraining power. You had no power at all. The Bible says you were in bondage to sin, enslaved by the devil to do his works. To do his work. I love Christianity because we get to see people's lives transformed. Second Corinthians 3:18. This is the new covenant glory. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as, from the, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. In other words, Christianity, and when Christ is in you, it looks like this. You're going from glory to glory. You're going from one stage of Christianity to the next stage. You're looking, you're looking more and more, kind of like a mirror. You're looking into a, a foggy mirror at first when you get saved. And the longer and longer you stare at the mirror, or at longer and longer you stay in the Christian faith, the more and more the image begins to resemble Christ. And if you look at your life and you say, I don't see it. I don't see Christ taking shape in my life. Well, then this text is for you. This type of self-evaluation is for you. You know, I don't know. I've looked at my life and for years. I'm just kind of in a rut. I'm in the same place. It is not God's will for you to be in the same place, spiritually speaking. The trajectory of sanctification is upward. There is a progression. And it doesn't look like this. If you're listening on audio, you won't be able to see it. It doesn't look like this. You go from here, and then the next step is here. That's not what sanctification looks like. Not in your life, not in my life. Sinless perfectionist teachers, they would claim that you can go from here to here. Never sin again, okay? And that's why that's not Orthodox Christian doctrine. Because sanctification looks like this. Here you begin, and then you go up, and guess what, you come back down. And then you go up, and guess what, you come back down again. And you go up and you come back down. But guess what's happening? You're getting closer and closer and closer to the image of the glory of Jesus Christ. You're getting closer and closer from one degree to the next. And therefore, there has to be a growth. Jonathan Edwards his resolution, he said, resolve to study the scriptures so readily and so steadily to be able to perceive myself to be growing. How many people engage the Christian life that way? I'm going to be a Christian and I'm going to study the word of God in such a way that I can clearly perceive myself to be growing. And if I'm not seeing growth, then I'm not studying enough or I'm not studying the right way, or I'm not studying the right things. People come to our church from other churches, and the first thing I ask them as they're asking me questions about our church and all that, I ask them, are you growing? At the church where you're at, are you being challenged? Are you growing? Are you learning? And my wife and I, when we first moved to Texas, we visited so many churches. And after every service, I just asked her a simple question. Did you learn anything? Did you learn anything? Were you taught? Were you taught? Or were you just simply, you know, inspired? To be inspired is not the objective of Christian ministry. I'm not here to inspire you merely. I'm here to instruct you. I'm here to teach you. I'm here to challenge you. I'm here to to make sure that you are on the right track of your sanctification. Oh, so much more can be said. Now let's move quickly to the consequences of the examination. The consequences of the examination because he says, look, it should be self-evident. It should work like this. You should know that Christ is in you unless, and that is where the dreadful statement comes in, isn't it? Unless, indeed, you fail the test. You've done the work. You've searched your heart. You've looked at your life. You've asked yourself the hard questions. And you've come to the conclusion that you do not pass the test. And if you don't pass the test, that means you have failed the test. And if you fail the test, that means you are not in the faith. And if you're not in the faith, that means that Christ is not in you. And that's why we can't do Disneyland in church. Because we're talking about people going to heaven or hell. We're talking about either, either you're either either I'm standing up here today preaching this sermon and I am an aroma of life to some of you. Or I'm an aroma of death to some of you. Death to death, or life to life. If you fail the test, then what I'm saying will sound very much like death unappealing. You don't like it. It doesn't sit well with you. You don't savor it. It's not something you enjoy. But if you are a believer, as hard as the examination is, you welcome it. Because you know it's good for you. Right? He says, Paul knew, the only alternative, therefore, to passing the examination was to fail the test. To fail the test. Very amazing way he words this, to fail the test. The word to fail literally means to be found to be worthless. To be fa- He's not playing games. He's not trying to be real cute about it. And he's not trying to not offend anybody in the way he presents this. He is saying your faith is either going to be tried and found to be to the praise and glory of God, and it's going to be tried, and it's going to be found to be like precious gold and silver, or it will be tried and it will be found to be worthless. The word literally means of no value. You want to see uh, you want to see a parallel passage to this. Look at Hebrews chapter six, Hebrews chapter six verses seven and eight. Hebrews six is really a classic text on apostasy, on apostasy. And he gives this little parable about how we can know, once again, how we can know if someone is either in the faith or not. And he gives this parable in verse 7 for the ground that that drinks for ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is Worthless, that's the word. Worthless, adakimoy," which is almost to pass the test, but with the alpha, primitive, it means you don't pass the test because it's useless, it's worthless, it's of no value, just like thorns, just like thistles. To fail the test is a dreadful discovery, but there is hope for you. There is hope that if you are honest with yourself and you fail the test, fly to Christ. Flee to the cross. Once you have been uh, awakened to the fact that you may not be in the faith, your only refuge is not to flee to despair. It is not to flee to suicide. It is not to flee to self-destruction. It is not to flee to sensual lusts. Flee to Christ. He can give you life. He can give you the, the sustenance that you need. He can revive. He can cause you to be born again. I mean, let's face it, we can look at all the commandments of God and we First 1 Peter 1.16 says, Be holy as I am holy. And we can see our failure to measure up. But if we fail the test, it means before any obedience, it means that we don't have Christ. That we are not abiding in Christ. To turn there with me, John chapter 15, as we're bringing things slowly to a close. John chapter 15, I thought, how can I preach this text without preaching the text about the vine and the branches? I mean, this is where Jesus Himself is talking about this similar issue here. He says, I am the true vine... My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And so right there, two types of branches, those that are totally removed and then those that are just pruned. Now, if you're honest with yourself, pruning uh, involves cutting. Pruning involves those Ugly scissors that you get out of your garage and you go and you cut those branches down, right? Because you're trying to make the tree healthier. And you're trying to remove unhealthy influences. And guess what? Pruning requires tearing and cutting and cutting away and taking away influences that are unwanted and that are unhealthy in your life. Do you feel like that? Do you feel like God is at times cutting, pruning? It hurts. Sanctification is agonizing, Jesus himself said, agonize to enter into the kingdom. That's actually good. I know that sounds kind of morbid, but it's good that it hurts. It might be a sign that you're a Christian. I would say, it is a sign that you're a Christian, so long as you are a Christian. It reminds me of an old hymn. Can I read it to you? This is the second week in a row that I've read a hymn. And I thought, but it's too good. I can't pass it up. John Newton wrote a hymn about sanctification called I Asked the Lord. Have you heard it? Do you remember it? When you ask the Lord for certain things and then you think you're getting the opposite of what you're asking, but it's actually the way that God has designed to give you what you're asking. Listen to the theology of this hymn very carefully I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and in every grace that I might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way that it almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some way, some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And he let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Sometimes that's what sanctification feels like. You ask God, please use me. I want to be used by God. I want to be a godly man, a godly woman. And then your house gets hit with trial. After trial and wave after wave of pounding trials and tribulation and affliction and sickness. One kid gets sick, you get him better, next kid gets sick, you get him better. It just seems like you're in two months of sickness. Your marriage is not what it ought to be. The longer you're married, the more evil you see in each other's hearts. Welcome to sanctification. But, Jesus goes on to say in verse 6, If anyone doesn't abide in me, he is thrown away. As a branch that dries up, they gather it up, and they cast it into the fire, and it is burned. That does not speak of the Christian life. That speaks of those like Judas that did not abide in the vine. And therefore, The consequences of failing the test could not be any more sobering. And there is a final purpose to this. Verse 6, Paul says, I trust that when you realize that we are... He says, I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. What's the point of that passage? The point of that passage is to bring us full circle. They asked Paul, prove that you are who you say you are. You're an apostle, you're legitimate, your ministry is legitimate and godly. This may even indicate, as a matter of fact, this may even imply that they were asking, they were testing him so far, uh, uh, they, they were, they were you know, opposing his ministry to such an extent that they were even saying he was not a Christian. That's how bad the opposition may have gotten at Corinth. But at the end of the day, it's this when this self-examination happens, and oh, Paul is praying that they will pass the test. And once they do, once they realize that about themselves, then they will realize that Paul himself is not just a Christian, but that he himself is a genuine apostle, that he is authorized by Christ, that he speaks in the authority of Christ, and that he actually has their good in mind. He actually has They're good in mine. And brothers and sisters, when you have union with Christ, you will be in harmony with the church. You will be in a harmonious relationship with your brothers and sisters in the local church. You will be in a harmonious relationship with the leadership of your church. You will be in a harmonious relationship with with the fellow members and your fellow brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God, the family of God. That's the way That it works. And so, do not take the examination lightly. And I would say that, you know, we're going against the current here. We're going against the current of much of evangelicalism that says, look, don't get people to trip out about their salvation, don't complicate things for them, just don't, don't alert them to this kind of spiritual introspection. No, 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 no. We're talking about heaven and hell. And so to, we don't want to shortchange ourselves. We don't want to fool ourselves. We don't want to deceive ourselves. But we want to examine ourselves. But let me tell you this. The self-examination does not mean that we just, we're blessing the Lord, we're loving the Lord, and then now what the Lord wants of us is to be thrown into the fire of doubt and the fire of second-guessing ourselves. no. The whole reason that this arose, brothers and sisters, because there was problems in their walks of these folks, because there was sin, because there was division, because there were symptoms that there was a problem in Corinth. And so I would just say to you, are there symptoms in your life? Is there love to Christ? Is there an absence of love to Christ? Do you not love the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there an issue of obedience? Do you not obey the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you not obey His commandments? Are His commandments a burden to you? If they are, then there is reason, there is cause enough for you to engage in this sort of self-examination. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that every person here, Lord, that they would pass the test. Oh God, we cry out for mercy because... It is dreadful even to contemplate that we don't pass the test. But Lord, let us not be gullible and let us not be self-deluded and deceived into thinking that we are just going to escape into heaven. No, your word promises us that it will be through much trial and tribulation that we will enter the kingdom of God. Father, I want to pray for anyone in our church that struggles maybe on a regular basis with the assurance of their salvation, that they're just plagued with doubt more than the next person, that they can't get their mind off of the, 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 the dreaded reality that they may not be in the faith, that Christ may not dwell in them. Please, Lord, would you let it be a genuine, God-given assurance not anything manufactured by man, not any manipulation or false hope or false assurance that we could give to one another. But please, God, by the work of your Spirit, will you not assure those that are yours? And if they are not yours, for those here that are not yours, that are not in your number, I pray that you would grip their heart with a sobering truth, with a sobering reality. That there is simply no more important test than this. That if you fail here, if you fail this test, then everything else should be secondary to closing with God. To making, getting right, doing business with God. To going to you for mercy and grace. To laying hold of you and crying out, I will not let you go until you bless me. God, would you please save, cause those that are not yet born again, born anew, cause them, do a regenerating work in their life. Blow with your spirit, blow powerfully, or blow softly. But Lord, we pray, please let the wind of your spirit fill the souls of the dead. Please, God, we're praying for for a miraculous conversion of anyone here that doesn't know you. And we pray for Mexico that you would do the same thing there. Father, we praise you. Lord, we honor you. We ask that you would be glorified in our church and all that we do, Lord. For 2014, we pray that your word would even more so be preeminent in our church. We bless your name, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand, let's close in this song together.